We must not hype. Hype is the entertainment killer. Welcome to Film is Lit, the podcast where we take a piece of literature and compare and contrast it to its film or TV adaptation. My name is Danny, pronouns he, him. I'm the film expert. My name is Laura, she, her, and I suppose I'm the literature expert. Yes, we're, we, we've given the titles to ourselves. Uh, and today is another very special episode we have with us a guest, Laura. Sure. So coming to you straight from Jamestown, North Dakota, or do you not want me to say where you live? <laughs> Address, <laughs> 34 Woodbrook Road, Social Security, 3-1. Uh, anyway, we have joining us Dr. Sean Flory, who is my English professor and advisor all the way through college. So welcome, Dr. Flory. I'll try to call you Sean now that I have graduated. <laughs> yes, you haven't been my student for a while, so... You're just right. running around calling me Dr. Flory all the time. It's going to weird me out. <laughs> I do. It's difficult to break that habit. I'm sorry. Yeah. Would, would you prefer Sean? Yes. Okay. Yes. Got it. Yeah. It's going to be, it's going to be hard. I have a couple of doctor jokes, but, it, but anyways, let's, I'll, I'll bypass If you want those, to call me but... doc the entire time, that's, that's fine. Just don't call me Dr. Yui. Cause that's. <laughs> oh, we're going to, so that's us. A, a thousand deaths are not enough for Dr. Yui. Yes. Um, yeah, that's a little hint to the book and movie we're covering. Obviously, you probably already know what we're covering since the, there's the title of the podcast. But today we are covering Dune. Yes. <laughs> One of my favorite books. And we are covering the David Lynch 1984 adaptation of the movie of the same name, Dune, uh, not the extended cut, which David Lynch himself has denounced this movie, condemned this movie. He wants nothing to do with the extended cut or the TV cut, um, if you, which was longer as well. Um, wow. Yeah, he he completely regrets making this film, and both of us understand why. Um, <laughs> and I'm very interested in your take. I know when we Laura and I came out to Jamestown two summers ago. We we talked a little bit about that because I had just started to read the book during that time. And you told me about the movie. And I had known about the movie for a while and how wild it was. But I, but I had only seen clips. And you had told me basically your logline was like, I wonder how much drugs David Lynch was on while making this movie. And my answer after watching it is all of them. Uh, so we would love to hear, well, we're going to go through our personal journeys. So yeah, da, kick I mean, us with, off. With, with David Lynch, I mean, when, when I think about that, it's like maybe he wasn't because maybe he was just on David Lynch. Yeah. Because... <laughs> Right. You can watch any interview with him and he's this eccentric little alien who makes mm -hmm. he makes weird but sometimes fun movies, a great TV show, Twin Peaks, but mm -hmm. yeah, his filmography in my opinion is varied. I know that coming from a cinephile, uh that's kind of sacrilegious because a lot of times film majors, especially, they're like, oh, you just don't get it. You just don't get his films. <laughs> and a lot of times it's like, I get it. It's just, it seems like being weird for weird sake. Whereas something like Dune is just someone who has a clear misunderstanding of the source material. He also was clearly over his head making this, <laughs> as he admitted later in 
later interviews um years later he's like he straight up said i shouldn't have made this movie it was the wrong choice but sorry go go ahead uh okay well i think um i mean this is uh this is actually really fun that i get to talk about this movie and about this book because i mean this is probably probably my favorite book um Mm -hmm. that i've ever read weirdly enough i came to the book through seeing the movie interesting yes and i saw it probably when i was 10 because in the 80s parents made bad choices uh, about what to let their (laughs) what the what to let their kids watch so we me and my brother we got to see all sorts of movies we probably shouldn't have much younger than we probably should have Mm -hmm. but i remember watching it on we rented it at the at blockbuster or something like that at when in probably a couple years after after it come out i don't know exactly how old i was but it was nine or ten i know i didn't see it in the theater that was like reserved for like star trek and star wars movies and stuff like that right but i do remember seeing it on the movie and just it was one of these movies that you see when you're a kid and your mind just gets blown i was just like I just want to know more about this. <laughs> and so when I kept badgering my mom, because my mom was a big science fiction fan, you know, she said, okay, well, the movie will make more sense if you read the book. And so she gave me the book and I read it. And I have read it at least once a year since I was 10. So I've this wow. might be, I might've read this more times than anything that, any more than any book that I don't actually teach in classes. Wow. <laughs> awesome. That's amazing. That, that's really cool. Yeah. Well, my I'm as Laura knows a huge sci-fi fan and I'd always known about Dune even as a little kid and my first experience with it was the 2000 sci-fi miniseries of Mm -hmm. dune which is five hours in total two parts and yeah back in the early 2000s before sci-fi channel got all weird making kind of alien shows and horror shows they used to make these really cool miniseries based off books and that was around that time also like stephen king a lot of his books were being made into miniseries it kind of was this point in time where that just like that was happening across all television shows and i managed to watch that as a kid and i was pretty mesmerized by it Uh, watching it now going back you can see how they're clearly limited in their budget um it it doesn't hold up today i tried watching it and in my (laughs) opinion it's just you can it looks like a high school production in terms of like the (laughs) costumes and effects and all that stuff but but it still is i would say well made from an acting standpoint but not a production standpoint I was so interested in it, but I just never got around to reading the book. And I had seen clips of the David Lynch movie, and I knew about David Lynch in high school, just getting into film. And I had, I knew about that this film was not well regarded and very weird. And I had basically seen most of the film via YouTube clips. <laughs> and then I finally got around to reading the book two years ago, as we said, in the summer of twenty. 18 loved it it quickly became one of my favorite books as well and i had a vested interest in it because around that time it was just announced that my favorite director current modern director denis villeneuve was tackling this source material which is insane because he had made blade runner 2049 and that 
it didn't flop, but it didn't make money for Warner Brothers. So the fact that Warner Brothers gave him an even bigger budget to make Dune, or at least the first half of the book, and if this movie does well, he's going to make the second. Mm-hmm. But the fact that Warner Brothers did that, I was like, oh, wow, that was unexpected. And one of my favorite books, favorite director, like easily the most anticipated movie of all time <laughs> in my life, at least. And as of recording... It still is slated to be released in December, but the industry is predicting it's going to be pushed again because Tenet was supposed to be the movie that got everyone back to theaters and it's not performing up to expectations. So a big blockbuster like Dune will probably be pushed. But they played the trailer for Dune in front of Tenet when I we went to see it and man, that blew us away. Yeah, what a really what a trailer. And of course we watched it a million times when it was released on YouTube, but yeah, what yeah. a what a trailer. I think yeah. actually I was texting Sean I think maybe after the first four times we watched the trailer. <laughs> and I think you said the same thing. You were like, I've only watched it a million times already. I watched it in my office at school. And I think like dogs started barking on campus because I was a little <laughs> hypersonic about it. It's yeah. It's, I am. I, I mean, after seeing I, I, cause I saw the sci-fi series and that works because it's got enough space, enough time to actually get most of the plot in. Lynch's movie doesn't work, mm-hmm. and we'll yeah. talk about all the very all the reasons why. <laughs> yeah, even though I right. I love it kind of unironically, <laughs> it's, not, <laughs> it's not like a mystery science three thousand kind of love that I have for mm-hmm. it. Um, and it, it is one of these. It is a very strange object. So let's just put it that way. That mm-hmm. I just strange I just, is putting it lightly, but <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which. Well. I, I can understand why they hired Lynch to do it, but it's still, it was a terrible idea for them to do that. Yes. Oh, yes. Right. Yeah. I, I have maybe, maybe my third comment about the movie is exactly about that, about how it's such an epic book, but with such a limited time frame, all these characters are trying to sort of fit that epicness into their performances mm-hmm. and it doesn't work because it's like they have all of these elongated pauses and these silences yeah. and they're like they're trying to make it so epic but it's just it doesn't work i mean they had toto for for gosh sakes <laughs> doing some of the score but most of the movie is just, is silent which is is a bizarre choice in my opinion but you know, the credits come on they're like you know score composed by toto and you're like awesome what um, but it's it's only you know you only hear the guitar like when they're riding the worms mm-hmm. and it's like really the only time where you really hear the score um, and then of course there's Brian Eno's theme which is great but that's the that's the only theme that plays there's no really mm-hmm. variance to it so but your you so your journey your very short one very short <laughs> <laughs> so actually my best friend Allison is a huge sci-fi fan way more than I am I think I'm sort of recently getting a little bit more into sci-fi but she has read so much and so she told me to read Dune probably in high school I don't remember when she first read it but she's been telling me to read it and just because I don't particularly like the genre i had been putting it off just because it's a long book and I had other stuff to read so Danny finally read it and was like, no, like for sure, this is really good. I think that you're, you know, it's not just a simple plot line. It's a lot like Game of Thrones, which I really loved. And 
So I was like, okay, I'll dive into it. And I enjoyed it uh, in uh, some ways. But <laughs> I, it's coming. <laughs> no, I, I enjoyed it. And I appreciated it. I'll put it that way. I appreciated it. I don't think I'll ever read it again. It's just not my kind of book. Right. And, <laughs> and with the movie, I just think that I also probably won't watch it again. Well, <laughs> but, and, and maybe a PSA for anyone who's going to dive into the movie, don't watch it while you're eating. Because oh. there are a few points in the movie that <laughs> where, where I was eating and I very quickly put my food down and decided that I needed to put a pause on my dinner because because of sometimes there are just some gross scenes. Yeah, for which... whatever reason, we decided to break this film up into two chunks. And the two chunks where we watched it was over meals, which was a mistake. Right, during dinner. Because... <laughs> This movie, in one word, is vile. <laughs> it's it's just so gross. Sometimes in cool ways, sometimes in just what were they thinking ways. So, so Laura, you weren't a big fan of the Harkonnens and the Beaster Bond, like putting that bug in that little square thing and squishing it and drinking his juice? That in particular, <laughs> I was eating. I think I was literally in the middle of taking a bite off my fork, and I just... I just put my food down. It was so gross. And then another point that I'm talking about is when uh, the uh, when the Baron spits in Lady Jessica's Jessica, yeah. face. Mm-hmm. I just really could not handle. I like I I just had. There were a lot of points where I honestly just kind of like closed my eyes like a little kid. I was like, this is so gross. But so anyway, I I'm very interested. Here's here's the thing about the book and the movie for me. I was very interested to read it because I really want to know what makes people enjoy it. And I think maybe maybe if I just have a better and a deeper understanding of the book, I'll come around to it because that's happened to me before. And the other thing, though, too, is that because I didn't like the movie, I it makes me so much more excited for the new movie, which maybe maybe I'm just putting more and more pressure on it to be incredible, which is well, maybe concerning. As I open, yeah, that's the thing. Hype is the entertainment killer because <laughs> I, I tend to. Laura knows this. I do this all the time for movies, like for Tenet, for instance. I couldn't have hyped that movie up more, especially after it was delayed. And it's like no way it can live up to those expectations. I, I mean, I still really like the movie, but I was thinking it was going to be the. Next best thing since sliced Inception, uh, but, uh, <laughs> but no, Inception is better than Tenet. But Doc, I mean, it's if hard you to get ha- better than it's hard to hard to get better than Inception. That is, yeah, an almost perfect movie. <laughs> right, I just rewatched it the other day. I'm like, yep, this will be good forever. But if you would have to distill, not necessarily the message of the book proper, but distill like what you take out of the book. And why you love it so much. A brief summary. Like what what would you say? Ooh, a brief summary of Dune. That's, that's yeah, a that, tricky, or, that's a trick tricky question. <laughs> um, or a brief summary of yeah, of like what you get out of it or or what you appreciate most about and it. No pressure, but I am treating this like a lecture. So I'm taking <laughs> notes <laughs> and writing them down. Well, the thing about Dune that separates it from a lot of science fiction is like its complexity in terms of in terms of Herbert's themes like it is it's a, it's about a lot of things it's about 
politics and the way that politics work it's about the it's about the intersection between religion and politics and it's about the the intersection between about the, it's about the effects of the environment um, on societies and cultures and it's mm-hmm. also about economics in a weird sense i mean it's it, i mean not in a weird sense i mean he wrote it herbert wrote it in 1965 so mm-hmm. it's right at the beginning, right at that point where everybody started to realize that, well, maybe oil is not completely unlimited because um, it, it's a really, it, it's, it's kind of, it's a kind of an obvious metaphor that he's using where the spice melange is oil, essentially. Mm-hmm. It's not an accident that it happens on Arrakis, this desert planet. You know, the Fremen are, they're not Arabs or Muslims or anything like that, but they are they are in, in, in a lot, in a lot of ways. Um, but what's also kind of interesting is how sympathetically he treats, he, he treats the, the people who are essentially colonized uh, by the Harkonnens and the entire Imperial apparatus and the way in which he weaves together all those themes. And then it includes enough character development, you know, some actually some fairly compelling characters so that we see how one of the colonizers is essentially nativized i mean there's a lot of stuff that's like there's a lot of orientalization and stuff like that that goes into it but it's 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 just the 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 network the 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 complexity of it is the the only thing that i can think of that that really compares to it is like lord of the rings in in terms of that density of mythology that density of world building And, and that's one reason why i i just love it and keep going back to it um constantly um i've read all the there's like five sequels and i've read all of those not nearly as often because they there is diminishing returns mm-hmm. um, as you go forward but uh and we're not even talking about what his kid did with it um, yeah <laughs> <laughs> um but i, I th- <laughs> sorry for the cat noises there cat <laughs> <in> the background. <laughs> um but yeah it's it's just the just the fact that there is such a well-realized universe in a lot of ways. And I think obviously, I mean, I was a, a kid who liked reading, reading books and already kind of liked science fiction at that when I was already, when I was 10. So seeing those kinds of things where you can start picking at the threads and I mean, the book has a glossary for God's sake. I mean, how can I not yeah. like that? And it's got maps and it's got, it's got appendices that are written by, you know, these fake people, you know, from 10,000 mm-hmm. years in the future. <laughs> it's, it's, mm-hmm. it was just, it was catnip for a kid like a kid like me. So <laughs> Yeah, I also really liked that. I think actually my favorite part of the book was the theology that Princess Aurelian or Irulan. Yeah, Irulan. Sorry. Um, <laughs> excuse me. It's it's Irulan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was like my favorite part because I really liked the world building also in Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. and I think maybe just the I like that book more because it's like the fantastic sort of characters like I like the trolls and the fairies and you know stuff like that a little bit more but yeah that's what I that's what I really liked was the beginning of each chapter and how she sort of framed everything going on and how it was sort of almost a little bit of an analysis in the beginning of the chapter so Mm -hmm. I had a little bit more to sink my teeth into and a little bit more context going in but yeah I, I think that is probably one of my favorite parts of the book. I, I can yeah. understand why people wouldn't necessarily get hooked by it because Herbert is not, he, he's not like a lyrical prose stylist. 
you know, mm-hmm. he's in his prose is, is more functional than anything else. I mean, he, there's, mm-hmm. there's some really good stuff he comes up with, like the Benny Gesserit litany against fear. That's just, that's really great. Mm-hmm. But of that kind of, I mean, Tolkien is, was much more of a artist when it came to that kind of, just like the surface level of the, of his sentences. That's really funny. I did actually note the sentence structure <laughs> of the book <laughs> when I started reading. And it was very different than what we just read, which is also slightly applicable because we just released our oil episode a few weeks ago because this is like for recording in the future. But Upton Sinclair's sentence structure is very, very complex. And so I was going between these two books and I was sort of like just very interested in the differences between, you know, how authors write and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So yeah, sentence structure is very simple in this book. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of people, when they saw the new trailer for the 2020 movie, you know, there's there's always critics. And some people were like, wow, this looks so dour and serious and dark, both, you know, literally in the colors and thematically. And it's kind of like, yeah, that's what, that's what that Dune is. is. It's, <laughs> that it's like, it is a, a bad time for everyone but that's kind of what makes it great and what i really appreciated about it is as a fan of sci-fi you read so many books where authors are world building just for the sake of world building or to like write more books but what herbert brings to the table is stuff that you surprisingly don't see a lot of in sci-fi which is economics or religion it's like he's saying like sci-fi is more than just creating future technology and creating all these classes of people. They're like, at the end of the day, they're still people. They still function around their beliefs or they function around these products that control their economy. They they focus off of capitalism. And it's kind of just, I don't know, it it felt new to me to see these very human themes in sci-fi. So so much of sci-fi, as I've said, is just building this world. And that is, that is cool. I love to see cool new universes, but at the end of the day, it is a very human story. And, and that's why I think for as complex as Dune is, I didn't really find myself needing to consult the glossary or to go online. I, I really understood characters' motivations. Even from brief introductions, I can understand why the Emperor views House Atreides as a threat because they are in a position where they're so well loved and controlling now that they control Arrakis, they control the spice and that's a threat to him. So he purposely makes Arrakis a trap so he can take them out. And I love the infighting about he supplies his own Sardaukar soldiers to the Harkonnens so they can win you know, over House of Trade. I just, I just love all the, the machinations of the war and the politics of it. It's very medieval in certain ways. You know? yeah. I mean, the social structure is kind of feudalistic, even though it's, mm. even though it's more corporate feudalism yeah. in, in a lot of ways. But yeah, just the fact that the politics become kind of, even though it's complicated, they come, become kind of sim- simplistic um, right. in, in, a, in, a, in a very kind of old-fashioned way. And then the story itself is... I mean, the whole whole story of Paul Moedib is basically Luke Skywalker, except slightly less cheerful, <laughs> right. less lightsabers in it. I kind of I kind of love that because there are so many chosen one stories where mm-hmm. 
a character realizes that they've been either bred from birth to become this leader or they've been chosen by a higher power or, or something. And they, oh, yeah, mid Oh yeah. Midichlorians, <laughs> which is Canon. That's George Lucas made it. So, um, uh, but what I love about Dune is Herbert is saying, even when you get revenge and conquer lands and become a leader, that is not something to triumph over. Your literal triumph is still going to lead to hardship. And I've only read Dune Messiah and Children of Dune, the mm -hmm. two books that came after Dune. And I tried to read God Emperor of Dune. I got about 100 pages into that. And I'm like, I'm out. Um, uh, you didn't like his son turning into a sandworm 3,000 years no, in the future? I'm just like, <laughs> uh, I'm like, what is this? But... Oh, yeah, they get weirder. I, yeah, so I've heard. So I've heard. Well, if I could just, I want to comment on what you're saying about Paul's character, because maybe I, as I discuss this book, maybe I'm realizing I liking it. I'm, I liked it more than I thought I did. But I also really liked that Paul was a very complex character and that he was constantly aware of the fact that he could slash would create a very violent uprising. Mm -hmm. And so he kept having to remind himself to sort of go slow and be very strategic about his moves. And I, that's something that I made a comment on about the movie to Danny, because I felt like, what's the guy's name that plays Paul? Kyle? Kyle McLaughlin. McLaughlin. I, I just didn't feel like he was going slow and he wasn't, thinking about his actions, he sort of just did them and was, I, I just didn't really see that thought process, I guess, even though they had the voiceover. Even though they had the, the literal. <laughs> of the thought process. I just, I just didn't believe that he was that same character who was concerned about the future of his eventual people. Right. Yeah. yeah. Now we've come to the first major flaw of the movie where, <laughs> Well, in books, you have the luxury of reading characters' inner monologues, but the movie makes the decision to have voiceover narration for all the characters. And it's Everybody. kind of a, yeah, it's ev not just every Harrison single Ford. person. <laughs> um, yeah, and it's done in a Terrence Malick like whisper of their all whisper. If you've ever seen a Terrence Malick mm -hmm. film, all the characters whisper narration. But well, Terrence Malick, it's, it works because it's not like ex exposition. <laughs> right. Th that's the thing where all the monolo monologues are literally saying what they're thinking or saying exposition. And exposition on its head isn't inherently bad. But dialogue is not information like dialogue is character you can still bring up exposition but it needs to be organic but the way all these inner monologues are played off in the movie it's, it's just directly talking to the audience and in no universe whether it's the you know the imperium or our own universe is that natural and it's just so bizarre to have the entire movie just be told to you straight a lot of times you'll see a character will say what they want and then the inner monologues will be like, I want to go here, like Dune, Desert Planet. And it's like, we, we know you just you just said that. So it's that's the whole movie. That's one of the biggest flaws, in my opinion. Especially when it's like sentences and paragraphs and just like ripped straight from the book. And it's just like, yeah. it's just like yeah. David. Yeah. <laughs> 
Now, what are some other elements that you kind of know are flawed and bizarre, but they're bizarre to such a degree that you appreciate them? Because because you're talking about how you kind of unironically love the the pure insanity of this movie. Well, there, are... I'm, I'm, well first of all, I mentioned this to Laura earlier in like a text message or an email or something <laughs> like that. We were like confirming and she mentioned that she didn't like the movie and... <laughs> I responded that it has a young Patrick Stewart carrying a pug into battle. Yeah. It's, 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 that's what I think is that it's, it's the, the visual imagery of a lot of parts of the movie that keep drawing me back to it. Mm -hmm. I don't watch it every year. I'm I'm not that insane. And and to be honest, I did not finish rewatching it for this podcast because I had just rewatched it like two months ago. Yeah. Don't blame you. It takes a lot out of you. Because uh, John Hodgman, apparently, he also unironically loves it. And he posted on his Instagram account that he, he was watching it. I was just like, oh, I should watch. <laughs> yeah. I, I should watch it. I should watch it again. So I watched it again, like, back in July or June or something like that. So mm-hmm. I've got my fill of Dune, the movie, for the next five years or so. <laughs> Same. <laughs> but it's. Yeah, but he like posted a picture of the guild navigator at the in the in the in that opening scene, and just considering some parts of it as like a still image, you look at it and you're like, oh, I understand why they hired David Lynch to mm-hmm. make this movie because if there's somebody who can make a a weird image, it is definitely David Lynch. And another re- another reason why the book is so interesting is that it's completely it's almost completely unlike any version of the future that I can think of in, in most mm-hmm. most science fiction because there aren't any robots there aren't any computers ten thousand years before the book is set there's been this massive religious jihad against computers that has started this movement of human self improvement essentially so there are these various different schools of thought, the Spacing Guild and then the Bene Gesserit and the uh, the Mintats, who are all essentially human computers, even though they're human, not just computers. And there's these, you know, the spice can make people, can people can see sort of, can sort of see the future and they become kind of mutated and that allows them to just go through hyperspace and stuff like that. It's just bananas when you start considering how strange it is. And so you see the imagery that, that Lynch came up with and you're like, I understand exactly why, he, why, why they hired him because that opening scene, that opening scene in particular in, in the emperor's throne room, dialogue aside, which is just a disaster. Of, yeah. I mean, it's just like, are you the emperor, Potash, uh, are you the emperor Shaddam or are you Captain Exposition? Like, what exactly are we supposed to be doing here? Because <laughs> it is yeah. just explaining the entire goddamn plan, <laughs> you know, right yeah. from the outset. It's just like, mm-hmm. all right, so we know it's gonna, what the entire movie's plot is going to be. But the imagery is just bizarre. I mean, because I, I happened to, I was paying attention to it, and I was just looking at all the crazy-ass shit that was going on in the background. Yeah. Before the guild navigators come up, and then the guild, that giant fish tank comes up, yeah. And that weird pale guy, and they're all, and the guild agents are all wearing those hefty bags or whatever it is that they're wearing. And yeah. I, you're looking at it, it's like, who the hell would do this? And then that guy starts talking, and it's just like that weird in the background <laughs> behind the translator. And then the tank opens up, and this thing comes, this weird tadpole person comes floating up. 
and it starts talking and it's breathing this orange smoke and it's just like those it's the imagery i think more than anything else that 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 brings me back to it over and over again because lynch had something of an idea I'll give him at least that much credit. Uh, he yeah. had he had an idea about what this what what this world should look like, and the weird like, like in Lynch's movie, there's always the weird use of sound. Like I'm just I, I think about Eraserhead because that's probably my favorite Lynch movie, which probably says mm-hmm. something about me. <laughs> I think about it, but you know, there's all that all that weird kind of industrial sound and the weird piping and all that sort of stuff that the weird gurgling that's going on in the background that that's that goes all through Dune too. And is is Dune his first movie that he made after Eraserhead, or did he make? I I believe so. Oh no, he made The Elephant Man uh, and then Dune. Okay, yeah. so The so Elephant Dune, Man must yeah. be what got him what got him the Dune, which is understandable. It's also a great it's a great movie. Mm-hmm. Just thinking about the way the imagery and the sound work together in in, in Eraserhead. It, it, it makes sense that they would give this freaking weirdo um, a lot of money to make to make a movie of a book that I'm, I'm sure the the people who had bought the option on it were were certain that it was completely unfilmable because how can you film this freaking book? It just doesn't make right. any sense. Yeah, I'm I'm nervous for my boy Denis. I mean, yeah. like even half half of the book, I, it's so tough, but. Something analogous to a studio hiring a very weird niche director to create something big and popular for mass audiences is Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, which many consider the best Harry Potter film. I think it's tied tied for first, in my opinion, with Goblet. Um, but but they hired uh, Alfonso Cuaron for that, who had made a bunch of movies in Spain and Mexico. And his only English film was Children of Men, which is a very cool dystopian mm-hmm. sci-fi, critically acclaimed movie. But not it's well regarded and well seen now, but back when it was released, it wasn't a big hit. It's very depressing. So it's no, yeah. no doubt that it wasn't. It was, it's a great movie. It's, it's awesome. But yeah, it's right. Uh, but I just want to interject Rip J.K. Rowling. I hate her now. Right. Oh, yeah. Continue. Yeah. Does she... <laughs> She wrote the books and then died. Then died. Uh, <laughs> went up in smoke. But I'm bringing up Warner Brothers again. I'm. I don't love. I'm not. It feels like I have a huge crush on Warner Brothers. But they hired this very niche, weird art house director to make a Harry Potter film. And the movie itself, Azkaban, is very weird. I don't know if you seen it in a while but rewatch it and it's actually pretty bizarre is that the one with like the dementor i've never read any of the books Mm -hmm. and i only saw i'm pretty sure this is the one that i saw because it's got the dementors showing up for the first time Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. i went and a friend of mine in grad school had a job reviewing movies for like one of the baton rouge tv stations and so he got free passes and when his girlfriend didn't want to go with him he was just like you want to go see this movie i was just like yeah sure i'll go i've never read any harry potter I watched those. I was like, "That is really that was really a good movie." I didn't have to know anything. And that, without knowing that, that's my favorite movie, right? Actually. And, th- and that's something where. Well, not uh, sorry, not my favorite movie. My favorite Harry Potter. Right. It, God, thanks for the <laughs> clarification. That is something where the risk of hiring a really eccentric art house director paid off clearly Mm -hmm. the those two the director and the source material married and had a great bond but whereas this is a situation where clearly there wasn't a great bond 
And reports have come out years later of the studio clashing with David Lynch and David Lynch having all these weird ideas and have them having to cut cut it down and recut the movie a bunch of times, kind of like they had to do with Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. And instead of a quirky movie made by an art house director, you have this weird Frankenstein mishmash <laughs> sci-fi where there are these ideas that just instead of adding to the experience and to the narrative, all they do is distract and take you out of it. I, my biggest example is the Baron Harkonnen's gravity suit belt, which in, in the book, you know, it, ju- it just has them float above ground, but it's, it's not, it's not a jetpack, which the he can't support his own weight, right? Right. He's so fat, He's so fat mm-hmm. that right, yeah, he right. can't support his own weight. But in the miniseries made this mistake as well by they made his suit a jetpack. And the image of this balloon shaped man floating around like a balloon. It's it's just funny. It's not <laughs> it, it, it's not obviously not in an intentional way. And it just looks bizarre, and the green screen technology wasn't at a place in 1984 (laughs) where it could look convincing. And then on top of that idea, they have scenes like him floating around and then flying under an oil dripper machine and dousing himself in oil. And then the sores on his face. Yeah. And then, oh, yeah, we'll get to the sores, which is not in the book. I've got some. Yeah. I, I think my opinion of the Harkonnens in the movie differs from yours entirely. I think. <laughs> I think oh, that is- but it's just so it is so overdone and weird, and he flies over to this young boy, and it's honestly one of the grossest scenes I've ever seen. And he flies over <laughs> to this young boy, who or a teenager, and pulls out this heart stopper, and blood is going, and he's like covering himself with blood and oil. <laughs> And it is it is one of those things where you watch it and I can't even admire it for the sheer absurdity of it. It's just it's just gross. <laughs> and I, I think I think the reason why Lynch did that is I mean, because it is a very different depiction of the Harkonnens than we see in the right. book. In the book there. I mean, the Baron is um, I mean, he's decadent, but in a way that we might sort of expect them to be decadent. You know, because he's mm. it, oh, the first time we see the Baron in the book, he's he's it's just this fat hand that goes in the light mm-hmm. and he's like spinning this globe around. And it's this globe of Arrakis that's made out of jewels and stuff like that. And the idea is that they're kind of like they're just they're just so fucking rich that yeah. they can buy whatever the hell they want to. And Giddy Prime, their planet is a, is an industrial shithole. But it doesn't matter to them because they got the money that they can use to buy all the stuff that they want to. And they've got, you know, all their retainers and their guardsmen can they can get addicted, get addicted to weird drugs that require them to play the right kind of music in order to get high. And they're kind of like kind of like the Roman emperors. That's kind of the way that they're portrayed, because they do have like Fade Routh of fights in like a gladiatorial pit. And they're so decadent that that's the only way that he, like, they can feel excitement is to go and kill other people essentially. yeah <laughs> and i think the the like the danger with doing that sort of thing in movies is it can come off as looking cool <laughs> much money. so i yeah. think True. that might be one reason why lynch went into that kind of weird gross version of the harkonnens yeah. because right. it makes it obvious like oh well this guy's got these weird face sores and he's got this weird doctor who's like either injecting him or sucking pus out of him. It's never entirely clear. 
but he's waxing the he's waxing lyrical about his how how his sores yeah. and his corruptions are like the best thing ever. Yeah, <laughs> then you got him, so those weird like tulips that are like have like gold gold leaves mm-hmm. and they're black. And then he goes and he's like, "Well, I'm just so you know regular sex can't excite me, so I'm gonna go and kill this guy by pulling a heart plug out of him." It, it's I, I i'm not saying that it works i'm not saying that it was a good idea yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but i can understand where lynch was going what lynch was going for right no that, that's interesting i didn't think about like because something that we've talked about obviously on the podcast a lot is how to go between a book and the movie and how a really good way of creating a good movie is to pull out things that you can make very visual mm-hmm. and like you said if you can't make the wealth gross like Herbert does in the book then how can you make it gross on the screen and I think that he really leaned into that and <laughs> like 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 you're saying I think it's an interesting approach because he achieved grossness but I don't know if like I don't know if it worked for the masses I don't know how many no. people saw this no. but, yeah. no, <laughs> but, I, but I understand like what you're saying like choosing the director who was gonna you know lean into right. the oddity of right things. and you're saying you don't know how many people saw this so the budget of the movie was 42 million which adjusted today would be making around a 99 million dollar movie and uh, it only made 31 million so it was a uh, it was a pretty big flop uh, but what were you saying John? i was gonna say i mean you, you see those scenes and that's the most eraser head parts of of the entire movie where you're just like oh yes this is definitely a david lynch film you know, when you mm-hmm. see those and you see the Spice Navi- the, the Guild Navigator and, and those parts of it, those are the choices where he it, where he went like full weird. And obviously the studio could not just look at it and say, well, <laughs> there's 20 minutes of the movie. We have to keep this footage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, something that I think was a studio mandated addition, and I can't prove this, but it doesn't feel like David Lynch, is the weirding modules, which mm-hmm. to the viewer, if you haven't seen the movie, is are these sonic guns that you control via your voice. And you, <laughs> a lot of times, the, the Fremen say their current leader, which is Paul, the, the Moadib. And it's one of those ideas where it's cool in concept, and I can see the studio being like, "We want to, we want to throw some action in this bad boy." Like we have Star Wars, and this this film is just so dang weird, David. Like, what have you done? Like, let's <laughs> let's let's just throw in some more action and have this kind of new weapon. But the problem is that the the new weapon is only cool in concept. To see people shouting into their guns. Is just it is also a, a funny image, and especially when they're shouting, it's like they're, they they all love they all love Paul, they all love Moadib, like little little Usul, you know, they they just love him. But it's just it's like a bunch of fanboys and girls uh, <laughs> being like Moadib, Moadib, we love you, Moadib, and like sh- and it's weird. And for fans of the book, the action kind of pissed me off a bit because the whole point of their shields, their personal shields that they have is that projectile weapons don't work on them. Mm -hmm. There's a whole set, you know, they explain that in the book. It's a whole thing about how, if you shoot someone who's wearing their shields, both you and the person who shoots you, they, there's an explosion, they blow up. So 
that's why the Weirding Way was created by the Benny Gesserit, which when I first read it, I read it as the the Bean Gesserit, <laughs> <laughs> which is funny. And and like I listened to the audio book, I'm like, oh, all these terms I now know how to say. <laughs> um, but that's why they created this new form of fighting where it's like Kung Fu, where you move slow enough to penetrate through the shields. And then once you're finally through, then you can mm -hmm. stab your opponent. So it's like samurai Kung Fu fighting, but both David Lynch and the studio did not want this type of fighting. They didn't think Kung Fu fighting was popular, which it wasn't during this time mm -hmm. in America, at least. So they created basically just like Star Wars action with lasers and bombs. But the thing is like, then why show the suits in the in the beginning? And what's the point of the fighting if you're just going to have them shoot? It's it's one of the changes from the book, which feels like a slap in the face to fans. I don't know if you feel the same way, Doc. That, but that is one of the biggest problems with the entire with the entire movie is, and that's kind of like the Star Warsification of it. Yeah, um, and I think that's probably part of part of the part of part of the reason why Paul doesn't work in the movie in the same way that he does in the in the book because they do try to turn him into they do try, try to turn him into Luke Skywalker in the sense that Luke Skywalker he is the hero he gets the call he's got this special heritage and all this sort of stuff and it's very simple and that works fine for for the original Star Wars trilogy and it works well for two of the three sequels. Um, <laughs> not the last one, but that's that's a, that's a, that's for another 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 podcast. I'm guessing. Yeah. Um, but in the book, Paul is you know what we, like Laura, you mentioned like the how complicated he seem he seems to be. He's it's not just because he knows the future and what's going to happen. It's that he knows that he's not just the hero he's a manufactured hero that the Bene Gesserit have come up with this religion and they have planted it on Arrakis specifically so that if a Bene Gesserit lands there and needs help they can go and manipulate this, this mythology so he knows mm -hmm. at the beginning that he is that he can take advantage of this religious religious narrative so he's like a self-aware prophet at the beginning and then as the novel goes on, he comes to believe in the Fremen religion, even though he doesn't want to lead this jihad that's going to lead to untold billions of people getting killed throughout the known universe. But eventually he comes to the, re comes to the recognition, whether that's right or not. And that's kind of why the novel ends on kind of a dark note. It's like, oh, he, he has become this prophet that he didn't want to actually become, but he needed to pretend that he was so that he'd get back to the planet. It's it's a really like there's it's a layer cake of like motivations that he has. Mm -hmm. Whereas with the movie, you know, he doesn't have that kind of that kind of complexity. Um, he is this very simple, even in a lot of ways more simple than 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 Luke Skywalker is, which is kind of hard because mm -hmm. Luke in a lot of ways is kind of a two dimensional character. Yeah. who only works because Mark Hamill is a weirdly good actor. I'm going to Tashi Station to get the power converters. You wouldn't think from watching like the first the first Star Wars movie, but you, know, you get into Empire and you get into Return of the Jedi, and he's actually a really good actor. And Kyle MacLachlan is a really good actor too. Um, yeah. And he's great in other Lynch movies, like in Blue Velvet. But in, in this one, it's just so... It's such a by the marks, and it's like, okay, well, if he's going to be like Luke Skywalker, he needs a lightsaber. So obviously, we're going to build these stupid 
things as opposed to making him like basically the best human being at karate and knife fighting in, in the entire universe. <laughs> and it's just like, mm-hmm. why would he not do that? I mean, he's essentially a ninja, but he doesn't have to wear a mask. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And another big fault of the movie is that since they're cramming the entire story into two hours and 17 minutes, there are certain things they need to condense. And of course, our girl Chani seriously gets the short stick and her character is is barely there. Her and Paul (laughs) fall in love seemingly at first sight, which to be fair... Paul has had visions of Chani and he's already kind of grown to have feelings for her before he even meets her. But for Chani to reciprocate those feelings, especially so fast, feels unnatural. It's like, okay, hero, here's your love interest and mm-hmm. she just loves you. Um, I can't imagine. I mean, Laura, you can speak this to this more, but I can't imagine you like that depiction of a love interest. Well, it's such a bummer, too, because I love her, the actress, what's her name? It's Sean Young. Yeah, Sean Young. Young, of course. I love her in, exactly, Blade Runner. Yeah. And she, as Danny explained to me while we were watching the movie, she was not in a lot of films because she had an incident with Catwoman. And Tim Burton's, yeah. Tim Burton's sort of thing so right that's a different story so yeah of course I was you know disappointed and I think in the book it's also a little bit rushed and and I understand like Paul's side of things but you know she falls in love with him very quickly as well and I think that's just a it's kind of a thing about female characters in books that men write (laughs) (laughs) and not not every book but I think like there are a lot of examples of women just falling for you know there are some there are some there are some excuses i mean i don't want to say excuse but you can there are some signs that it was written in 1965 that is definitely true yes exactly (laughs) but but the thing is though you have a badass group of women with the benny jesser which you brought up earlier sean Mm -hmm. and that that's my favorite part of the book of that they have this secret plan and and that they've been more or less trying to pull the strings this whole time. And they have their ulterior motives as as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And they can literally control men with their voices, which Mm -hmm. is a a really cool idea. But in David Lynch's movie, they come off so (laughs) intense, especially the Reverend mother of her just shrieking at some points. And I, not to get, graphic or crass here but other times it seems like she's climaxing um <laughs> I, I, it, it really does i'm not saying that to be juvenile it just really seems like she's having an orgasm yeah it's, it's funny too like just to comment on their appearance too when danny showed me pictures of the, of the movie i was like what <laughs> why, why why are they bald and they're supposed to be this sort of graceful guild of women and the guttural voice sound oh yeah their their controlling (laughs) voice sounds like they're being possessed Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right yeah so they're i don't know i personally thought that was a little that's that's kind of i can't imagine how anybody would film that properly just because right the the way that the way that it's described in the books like there's a number of places where the voice comes up whether mm-hmm. it's Jessica thinking about whether Paul's using it correctly or the mm-hmm. Reverend Mother trying to use it or thinking about the way that Paul is 
even at 15 already really gifted with this training that is that Jessica has given him it's described in terms in those kinds of I mean, Herbert uses words like sibilance and gutturals and stuff like that when it wouldn't be anything perceptible to the people who are being controlled, right? right? Exactly. It's sort of sub-aural. And I guess you give David Lynch the chance to come up with a weird sound effect and he's going to take the chance. <laughs> and I guess, uh, who's, the, who's the actress who plays uh, the Reverend Mother? Is that, I know her first, is it Sean? Sean Phillips? Yeah, Sean Phillips. I mean, she's a really good actress. And I think part of like the way that Lynch had them made up, because they are sort of meant to be this like sisterhood. They're kind of like these super, these future space nuns. And so I think the bald, the, the shaved head, the bald head was meant to be sort of, to evoke that kind of monastic kind of feel. Mm, um, and the, the fact that she's got steel teeth that's actually the way she's described and like because i'm reading dune i was just like well what the hell i've already finished reading and i'll read dune messiah <laughs> again she's described as having those kind of metallic teeth in that next one for reasons that are completely unclear um <laughs> i think sean phillips is just she realized she, she what she was in she was just like what the hell i'm gonna eat all the scenery in every scene that I'm <laughs> at this point. interesting yeah there's a lot of a lot of scenery chewing, especially with the aforementioned Baron Harkonnen. And also, we can't, I can't believe it's been an hour and five minutes into the podcast and we have not mentioned Sting. Oh. Uh, how, how have we not? Oh, Roxanne! Yeah, oh yeah. Oh my goodness. Danny told me that there's supposed to be a nude scene and I'm like, where is that cut? Oh, that... At least the nude cut scene yes. of Sting. So, Gordon fun Summers fact... made some choices. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, yes. So there's that scene where he comes out of the steam bath, maybe. <laughs> it, you don't really see if there's a, sh a shower in there, but there's a bunch of steam and he comes out and he only has kind of a thin thong with these wings protruding from the, his hips. And you can see his hole is, you know, he's a, he was a fit man, good looking mm -hmm. man. I'm not going to say I can say that. Um, but that was originally intended for it to be a, a nude scene. And you can kind of tell because the camera, you know, it's a full on just mm -hmm. body shot. His arms are up. And he's the camera, he's, he's moist. He, yeah, <laughs> um, he's just standing there and the light hits him. And it's like the camera lingers. It's very voyeuristic in that sense. And it originally was going to be a nude scene, but the studio backed out at the last second and was like, we were going to cover him after all. So they made this thong, weird Harkonnen. Space thong. Space thong. Winged space thong. And they covered it, which, I mean, it's just like, you know, slapping a fig leaf on that. Why would they do it? At, why would they want to do it as a nude scene? Because this was like, was this like Sting trying to start a movie career? <laughs> I mean, Sting, I, was, well, Sting was huge when I was eight. So, I mean, right. I, I knew who Sting was when and knew who the police was when I was like eight or 10 and stuff like that. So, I mean, obviously, he's been in movies like Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels and that sort of thing where he plays. He's, a, he's actually a good character actor. Yeah. He's not good at Dune. <laughs> no. I will kill him. <laughs> um, and that, his scene, that final confrontation kind of goes. It's uh, representative of the whole, a movie as a whole. And you have these scenes that are filled with these long silences mm -hmm. and there's no score. 
And it's just these weird, you can hear the inner monologues, and it's weird cardboard acting. And this final fight between Paul and Fade or Alpha, played by Sting, should be this kind of epic, intense battle, which it is in the book. Mm -hmm. Especially that you know that Fade is a a cheater. Mm -hmm. And it's established in the book, you see him fight gladiator style and he cheats to win. Mm -hmm. And so you know that going into the fight, that Fade is probably going to cheat in order to kill Paul. And you're like, oh, snap, could this actually happen when you're reading it? And the final fight is just flat. There are, there's no, again, they have Toto, didn't use him. It's just silent. You have Sting screaming out of nowhere. I will kill him. (laughs) I will kill him. (laughs) And there are no stakes. And Lore brought this up earlier when another scene that's you know ripped straight from the book is when they're saving those spice miners from the worm the first time you see the worm mm-hmm. but there's just nothing to it they they go down they get they people they rise up and then the worms there and it's just it just lands like a wet just like a wet tissue just it's just nothing it's just like yeah that was that was one of my favorite scenes in the book actually was when they demonstrated that duke leto really cared about the people more than he cared about the spice mm-hmm. And he saves all of those spice miners and it's so intense. And it's like, it's so cool that he had that sort of, he knew that, you know, they had like 15 minutes to get to the craft. I'm so bad at talking about this book, but the, you know, the, harvest, how there the like harvester, that, the harvester. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there was that time frame that they had to get there before yeah, the that, worm that got there. That ticking clock. That ticking yeah. clock, right, of, of the worm coming, but also the helicopter craft that's going to go save them with Duke Lido. And, like, that part was so intense and so cool. And I was, like, really into the book at that point. But, yeah, the, the movie kind of dropped it for me and dropped that ball for me. It was Which, a little bit – the stakes were kind of low. That scene is so abbreviated and so annoying because it's like, yeah. how do you waste Max von Sydow? And this movie manages to waste Max von Sydow. <laughs> I mean, is that the guy that plays Duke Leto? No, that's the... Or, no, he oh, plays oh, oh, he, he plays Liet. Yes! Yeah. Liet oh Kynes. That's, that's mm-hmm. the other thing. During that scene, so he was the only actor that I was like, wow, like, this guy is not just reading lines. He doesn't have the overdub as much. And I, like, almost as soon as he said his first line, I was like, oh, this guy could have carried the movie on his shoulders. Mm-hmm. Like, if we had more of him... I, I was mm-hmm. so into his him. I, like, hands down, best actor and, of yeah, the and, other than the pug. Right. But hands down, best actor in the whole movie. Well, I, I love Patrick Stewart, too, but he's mostly relegated to just right, he has shouting. No um, yeah. yeah, he's I about three, there, he's about three lines. But yeah, most of the actors, they're stoic, expressionless, blank slates who explain their literal inner thoughts to the audience via this uh, voiceover. And then Max von Sydow comes out and he's like a real person. And you're like, mm-hmm. what am I watching a different movie? It's such yeah. a breath of fresh air that, I mean, it sucks that his role is so small. Now I would like to give props to Brad Dourif for playing Peter DeVries. That I think okay. is a yeah. really good performance of, cause he, he feels convincingly alien yeah. in a really interesting he's, way. He's the, he's the Baron's Mintat. He's got the purple lips and he's got the crazy ass hair oh, yes, and he's the running crazy around. Eyebrows. Mm-hmm. Okay. We got yeah. a Billy Bibbit. Yes, he's doing things Billy like this. Bibbit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. Oh my gosh, I love that actor. He's so great in One Floor Cookies Nest. He's, okay, I mean, yep, I'm, I'm totally back into it. Got it. 
So, but even his scene is spoiled when the Baron like spits on Lady Jessica. And... Oh, yeah, yeah, no, but I, but I agree. I, I thought he was really, really good. I, yeah. I believed him as a strange character mm-hmm. because of who he was as a character, not just because it was just sort of a wacky movie. Yeah. Yeah, but I guess if I were to try to say what I think the movie does well, and boy, am I really, really struggling to come up. <laughs> with something i do think even though the actual first the the coup the assault that happens on the atreides palace in arrakis even though the fighting is completely goes against the book and is actually projectile gun weapons i do think the explosions the practical explosions and the the miniatures of the palace Mm. exploding was done fairly well and it, it holds up in a kind of cute way of like oh they were that's what they you know the technology was in in the 80s and it's like star wars with the with the models blowing up it it, it looks pretty cool and and it is like an onslaught of action which after about a full hour which i, I wasn't expecting the raid to happen that far in to the movie because in the book it's like what uh, a little more than a third of the way through whereas in the movie it's halfway Something through like that, yeah. i think yeah. And I, I just wasn't expecting that action to happen so late. So when it does happen, I think that is fun. And I mean, there's there's just something so cool about seeing uh, about seeing these men riding a sandworm while uh, Toto blares on the electric guitar. I mean, finally, they used they, they used this band and that that's a cool image, a little goofy with Paul looking back at uh <laughs> Uh, what's his? What's it's the friend? Stilgar. Stilgar. Yeah. A little goofy of him being like, "Look, Dad, like I'm riding a." Th-. But uh, but that is, I mean, in a pretty inherently badass image of them riding the this sandworm. Those were a couple parts that I thought were actually really effective, like the the battle scenes. It almost does that better in the movie than in the novel, because in the novel, the, the the focus is so much, and it's understandable why. What I know what Herbert was doing, because the focus is so much on what's going on in the palace and the fact that Yui is betraying the duke. And that whole like plot and getting Paul and Jessica out that the rest of what's happening to the rest of the Atreides doesn't really matter in terms of the plot of the novel. We know know that it's happening, but I, as much as I got through the the the, the movie, I, I noticed that there's there's a scene when all this fighting is going on and this epic action, and these weird guys in the weird garbage suit, garbage <laughs> garbage uh, garbage bag suits are running around and they're kind of crazy ass green face plates. I don't know what the hell's going on with that, but it's kind of cool looking, (laughs) even if it's not like the book, but there's a scene where in in the movie or a shot in the movie where you see the date palms on fire. And and that's Mm -hmm. mentioned in like a sentence in the, in the book and seeing it visually, I thought that really was an effective choice that Lynch made in, in terms of doing that. And then the sandworms. Yeah. I thought the sandworms are. I still think the sandworms are cool. Um, and this is yeah. They kind of look like demogorgons. Mm-hmm. I thought. Oh, the mouths. Um, yeah. Right from uh, Stranger Things. I thought every time they opened up their little petal mouths, and it got close, I was like, if that was just spray painted red, like that's a demogorgon. I thought it looked really cool too. Talk about something I wanted for Christmas when I was eight. <laughs> Did yeah. they have sandworm toys? Oh yeah, go to eBay. You can buy them if you want to. I have thought about oh. buying one. 
I don't Isn't know that if funny I want to spend seventy five dollars like, for one. <laughs> I was gonna say like yeah, like I honestly like still want an American Girl doll. Yeah. <laughs> like I never had one when I had a, when I was a kid, so like I could just go to a store and buy one now. <laughs> but, right. Yeah. But I won't. <laughs> You've got an adult job, adult money. <laughs> I could buy it with my adult money. Yeah. Last time I last time I watched the movie, I I did go on eBay and I was just like, how much would it cost me to buy one of these things? I was like, if it's in the box, like four hundred bucks. No, I'm not going to do that. But like one yeah. that's out of the original packaging, I could buy one. I could have one for seventy five dollars right now. <laughs> just like oh, maybe maybe I should. <laughs> are they plastic or like large? Like how big are they? Or like what is that? Look like? like this big. They're pretty good size. I mean, they're good size, and so they bend around, and you can open the mouths and stuff like that. They're, they're. I mean, I, I remember Aww. going to this. To- I remember going to the toy store when I was a kid and seeing them. I was just like, yeah, man, I saw that movie. That is cool as shit. Yeah, that's yeah. that's pretty cool. I mean, honestly, I would. I. <laughs> yeah. We have adult money now. <laughs> yeah. We keep talking long enough. I might actually go and buy one on my phone while talking. <laughs> yeah, keep pour yourself exactly. another drink. Let's exactly. see what happens. Well, I I was lucky enough to inherit all of my parents' Star Wars toys. Like when I was younger, my brother and I got to play with all the stuff that all of the Playmobil that was too expensive to buy when I was a kid. We got all of that stuff, but like Star Wars because my parents already had it and they just kept it. And I had like I had like a bunch of Barbie stuff that was all from the fifties and sixties, which was awesome. Mm. Like none of my friends had that stuff because my parents just saved it yeah so i got lucky should sell some of that get a lot of money uh (laughs) yeah but i the image of the sandworm with the lightning coming around around its mouth Mm. is pretty cool i mean i wonder if people riding the worms ever get electrocuted because (laughs) yeah that that is that is an addition that lynch made it it is very heavy heavy metal having people ride worms with electricity going i mean yeah, that's but in but I think that's where my uh, positives on the movie end. Yeah, again, I I've as I've already stated, not the huge Lynch fan, and I, I do appreciate though how he has. It, it, it takes a lot for a director to say that not only that I was the wrong pick, but I did a bad job. And David Lynch has openly admitted that both those things were the case. So, so I, I, I do really appreciate that about the man. Uh, even though I don't normally watch most of his movies, love twin peaks, but yeah, not, not really a fan of his, most of his movies. I enjoy a good practical effect. So I agree. I liked a lot of the explosions and a lot of the stunt work and I really enjoyed the Fremen guide. I thought he was really good. I, I didn't understand, but I enjoy the pug. <laughs> the pugs, yeah. Like, no mention of dogs in the book, but right, they... Uh... Right. And, and that's so funny, too. It's I think it sticks out because, as we've talked about ad nauseum during the episode, is that David Lynch is so strange. But he just decided, instead of creating you know, a, a baby Yoda or an Ewok sort of character that was completely his own creation, he just threw a couple of pugs in there. <laughs> and I think it's such a, it's such a funny choice. But yeah. it's also like, maybe it's just, he's a funky guy and he liked pugs. So he just threw the pugs in there. Like, Might knows? as well. <laughs> like, I just kind of, I thought that was just visually very funny. And like, I think... Sean, you mentioned also Patrick Stewart holding the pug going into battle. I was like, interesting choice. Really funny. (laughs) Um, And 
yeah, and I don't know. I guess I guess I appreciate the effort, and yeah, I <laughs> I don't know if I have I have more about to, to say about the book as well. I think, but whoever whoever designed the makeup effect for Thufer Hawat's eyebrows that were like this tall. Yes. They deserved an Oscar for that. Interesting point. Yeah. Makeup and costume design, I think overall was also very interesting. Actually, there's, this is funny. I don't think things like this are supposed to stick out in movies, but there is a, a minute of dialogue where Paul is speaking and because of the sound mixing or whatever, there's a part of his uniform that has a little tassel on the end that has a piece of metal at the top. And every time he moves, you can hear it clicking against his belt buckle. Hmm. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know why it stuck out, but I was just like, it's so funny that... <laughs> was... Knowing the way Lynch uses like ambient sound in his movies, it's almost, de- it's, I, I would guess it's deliberate. I mean, who the fuck knows what he wanted that to mean? <laughs> because sure. it's Lynch, but at the same time. I'm, yeah. 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 Yeah, some of the sets are pretty cool. Others are not. <laughs> yeah, fairly garish. Um, and hardcore cinephiles will know that there is this, an even more, uh, an even crazier director, Alejandro Yodorowsky, who was originally mm-hmm. touted to mm-hmm. film this movie. And there's a whole documentary about it called Yodorowsky's Dune. If you're a fan of Dune, I recommend that you watch the documentary. His vision was even crazier. And. <laughs> By several orders of magnitude. (laughs) Right. And a lot of films owe their style to Jodorowsky's Mm -hmm. uh, storyboards. Because I I think what I was a little disappointed was I thought that his film version was like in production. Mm -hmm. But basically, they only got as far as storyboards, which Mm -hmm. I mean, is is kind of lame. But but at the same time, it's like those storyboards went on to inspire a lot of other projects. Well, and look at the Dune trailer, which had Pink Floyd, a Pink Floyd cover as the theme. Mm -hmm. And Yodorovsky wanted to use Pink Floyd to did, was were they supposed for the to, soundtrack? Yeah, right. But yeah, were they, they supposed really... to compose the score as well, or just use? Mm-hmm. I believe so. Yeah. yeah so were. I mean, he's still inspiring ideas for Dune, which I think is really interesting. I, that that documentary also made me feel very uncomfortable. I have sort of a, a threshold for strangeness, <laughs> and, <laughs> and that that documentary, I I needed a bit of a palate cleanser. I think I watched a couple episodes of Jane the Virgin after that. <laughs> But yeah, it's just so like, it's interesting that so many people are so drawn to this complex novel because there are so many things going on. And I think to want to mine that for ideas because it's so strange, but it's also so rooted in human experience. I think it's interesting. It's admirable. Yeah. To say the least. (laughs) Or or would you like to say anything more about the movie? No. Well, I mean, the one thing I can think of there's one image from the movie that seems like it was actually drawn from Yodorovsky's like storyboards was the first time the Harkonnens are, are introduced, it shifts to like Giddy Prime and there's that giant weird face that is not exactly like H.R. Giger who was doing like all the design work for Yodorovsky. In the storyboards, there's this picture of the Harkonnens Citadel, which is like this giant yeah. fat body with his face going over. That yeah. seems to be that that might be like the connection between the two, and totally. maybe is pro might be what attracted Lynch to the project in the first place. Maybe I don't know. I don't. Mm. It's 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 one of those one of those images that is 
really evocative in the movie and really interesting and probably one of the reasons why I still keep coming back to it every few years, four or five years, maybe every six mm-hmm. years. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm being honest, it's just like you see it, it's just like, okay, that's that's one of the things that I really like about it. It's and it, yeah. again, it's there's it's not because of the quality because it's a train wreck of a movie. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's a nightmare. But there is. No, I totally agree. Yeah, the, just the imagery sometimes is just like, oh yes, that is. There is, there is, that, that is an artist who had a choice there. <laughs> he made that goddamn choice <laughs> with all of his heart. <laughs> yeah, totally. No, I think that was really striking. Um, another, I'll just like amend my or append my statement too. I actually really liked some of the the screens that they used to show the different planets. Mm-hmm. Right in the beginning, there's that part where Paul is learning and he's doing his little lesson. And they're like, the planets screen. are like weirdly elongated. Yeah. It's very well, strange. Yeah. And it was really cool. So, and right in the beginning too, it's like right in the beginning where he's looking at a screen that has a bunch of stars and it isolates the planet and then blows the planet up. So you see the environment and stuff like I thought that was really cool too that that felt very Star Wars to me and especially in the prequels when they have Qui-Gon Jinn going around and doing all that planetary research you know I thought that was really cool to sort of understand where they were physically in the universe Mm. so I thought those images were like were actually really well done yeah a little exposition heavy but well done Uh (laughs) oh they make it so much worse than like the extended version (laughs) Those, uh, yeah those that goes on for fucking ever <laughs> oh, oh boy well, i'm never gonna dive into that yeah I, i'm usually someone who watches extended versions but i can't see myself coming to see the extended version maybe right before dune 2020 comes out but yeah <laughs> all right doc well closing closing thoughts on the book of why you think it's important for people to read or or anything at all laid on us. Well, I think in terms of in terms of the book being important for people to read, I'm not going to argue that anybody should watch the movie because, again, I love it. But that's one of those irrational things that you feel love for <laughs> a lot yeah. of the times. But yeah. the, I mean the the book is in in terms of the way in which Herbert was thinking about politics and the way that political narratives maybe is a good way of putting it can be manipulated. I mean, we're not, we're not watching the presidential debates right now, but Mm -hmm. (laughs) there we go. (laughs) That's, that's, uh, that's probably Mm -hmm. my, that's probably my final reason why, why reading Dune is still relevant today, even though it was written, what, 45 years ago. No, no, more than that 65 i can't do yeah, math it, yep 65 55 years <laughs> something i've had too much bourbon to do math um <laughs> but in the sense that in the novel most of the characters who are doing things politically they're doing them very self-consciously like even duke leto who is unambiguously a good leader he's a good ruler to the extent to which any ruler in this universe that herbert has created can be good um, cause he does care about people. You know, we've got that scene where he does go and he lands by that spice harvester. And, and that's one reason why the, why the scene in the book is so great because he has everybody in not just his plane, his ornithopter, 
but everybody in his escort rip out like all their extra seats and shield generators and all this stuff so they can take everybody off. I mean, he does care about people. He knows that that is as much uh, performance as anything else. You know, mm-hmm. he recognizes that his power relies on his power of being a propagandist. And he knows, mm-hmm. at least on one level, during that scene, he knows that it's going to get out that he has done this thing and everybody is going to think, oh, that Duke Leto, he's a great guy. And he knows that that's mm-hmm. going to be his part of his bid to gain power over Arrakis. And Paul thinks the same thing up, up until the end. Mm-hmm. And that's also what's kind of interesting about it is because what happens when you have this political leader who knows that he's manipulating these political narratives, who comes to believe his own political narrative, mm-hmm. it's terrifying. Now, luckily, mm-hmm. most of them aren't gods like he is but at the same time it's just like (laughs) that's that's the thing that that makes the whole makes the makes the book really resonate i think now even so many years after he after after herbert wrote it i agree with everything you said and it 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 feels at times like you're reading a really interesting history book about obviously a history in time that is fiction hasn't existed and it's actually takes place in the future but it's so layered and mm-hmm. and focused in culture and on how people in societies act around leaders and act around religion and and how morals align with their goals and to read it you know the big message of the book that which herbert has said is to question your leaders that leaders aren't always right but on the flip side you also empathize with leaders because you realize how tough their roles are and how you cannot you can't please everyone and how you need to do you need to sacrifice certain things in order to get other things like the big sacrifice of duke leto is that he's going into arrakis knowing that it's a trap Mm -hmm. like he knows he's most likely going to die Mm -hmm. and that's why he's been training his son as mentat while lady jessica's been training him as benny jesuit is because he knows that that power is eventually going to go to his son and so the biggest sacrifice, he's basically giving up his life for his son and for his people. Mm-hmm. It's really cool to get that two-sided view on politics and leaders. It's a cool moral exercise mm-hmm. to see, like, was it right for this person to do that thing in order to get this thing? And, you, and you know, that applies to, you know, generals. It applies to mayors. You know, it, it's all down the line. So, yeah, that's what I say about reading the book. Even if you're not a fan of sci-fi it's like reading really interesting history about a society that has fiction. Yeah. So anything else there, Laura? That's really good takes. Well, if you know me personally, you know me that I'm, you know that I'm very interested in politics. So, and it's interesting too, because I'm sort of having this moment of remembering being in Sean's office as a student. And I remember you telling me that I need to read books multiple times for the most part to really let them sink in. And I I remember at that time I was like, well, listen, I'm what, like, what was I like 20 20 years old I don't know and I was like I don't have time to reread books I'm still trying to read them all the first time and and so maybe this book might take me a little while to come back around to and reread but hearing all the political talk maybe I should have read some analysis before going into this book a little bit because I think I would have really enjoyed it 
had I had a better context for all of those conversations. I, I personally felt a little lost during the book, but I think that's just because I have a harder time immersing myself in sci-fi for whatever reason. So maybe if you go into this book knowing that it's very political, you will really mm -hmm. enjoy it. I'm not, I wouldn't discourage anybody from reading it. If you're not a huge sci-fi fan, it is pretty heavy sci-fi. So just know that going in. Oh yeah. But... <laughs> But I, I really appreciate hearing these conversations and thinking maybe in the future I'll go back to the first book and just look for those things. And maybe this is slightly unrelated, but we talked a lot about Star Wars. And I think one of the reasons that I actually enjoy The Phantom Menace, which is not a good movie. I'm not saying it's a good movie at all. <laughs> But it has some really interesting. <laughs> so I we actually rewatched all of the movies, the Star Wars movies, all of yeah. the Star Wars movies mm -hmm. in chronological order before the last one came out last Christmas. And I actually found that I really liked the political conversations that were had around the rise of Palpatine. And again, the Phantom Menace is not a good movie, <laughs> but. But the, I actually thought it was very interesting to go back and see how his motivations came to be because he mm -hmm. sort of, he started to gather more and more power and figured out how he could manipulate people into taking action so that it didn't look like it was him. Mm -hmm. So, so I, I actually really enjoy those like complex political, like you said, and moral exercises and yeah. sort of how things can get to the worst case scenario, which I, I personally believe we are in right now, you know, so it's just very interesting to see how, you know, obviously like we're not going to have like spaceship battles and, you know, we're not going to be, it's not physically possible right now for people Yet. to be kicked off of planet earth but it, it is really interesting to see how we got here because of leaders that made decisions you know in the 80s and made decisions in the 70s like mm -hmm. all of these decisions that political leaders made decades ago that are now again personally i think showing how small poor decisions can lead to a worst case scenario so i i find that very compelling and maybe I'll go back and reread this and let it wash over me again. Yeah. Unrelated point. Your Star Wars ranking number one, Phantom Menace, number two, Attack of the Clones. Um, so no. <laughs> number no. three, Rise of the Skywalker. Um, so oh, anyways, no. all right. So no, rate it. No, no, that is completely untrue. I will not go on record with that. So any. Attack of the Clones is your favorite and then Phantom? No, uh, no. So All right. Ratings. No. Doc, out of four stars, how would you rate both? the book and the movie oh i would rate the book five stars and wait did i give it an extra star was it four stars or yeah it's fine it's fine, fine yeah it's fair enough yeah uh <laughs> the movie if i'm being honest two stars and that's only because i love it <laughs> to be honest yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm, i might abstain from starring this one because i well and to be clear i i actually i did take your advice to heart and i have consistently reread a book right before we record a podcast episode mm. because i i do i really need to have that extra sometimes i read it three times just because i really need to have that extra context going into this kind of conversation but so i've only read dune once and so i'm actually going to abstain i don't think i had a full understanding and a full 
appreciation for the book. And I and and I'm not going to rate the movie because it's just not my thing, and <laughs> and that's just a personal thing. I don't. I'm just not going to rate. No, it. you could rate it if you give it one star, or a half a star, and no stars. That's understandable because <laughs> yeah, yeah. I so well, I probably would give it half a star because I'm never going to watch it again, and I I'm putting a lot on the new movie, so we'll see. And I, the new if we trust, but and the, <laughs> I mean, he is when when I heard that they were going to be making it again, I was just like, oh god because yeah it's Mm -hmm. it's a it's a it's a book that seems like it really does seem in a lot of ways that's fundamentally unfilmable but when i heard that it was villeneuve doing it i was just like okay Mm -hmm. here's a person who knows how to film smart science fiction yeah and this is boy does he i mean arrival blade runner holy goddamn shit blade runner yeah Okay, can I, sorry, not to like completely derail this, but Arrival, incredible, literal story about linguistics. We, we had you, a whole episode I know, on. <laughs> I know, but just say, like, how do you visualize a movie about linguistics? How does he do it? He blows it out of the water. He does. I'm just saying, Villeneuve, <laughs> I mean, yeah. honestly. And so I mean, if his, can do this movie, he can. Yeah, his other work too, I mean, Sicario, Prisoners, mm-hmm. all masterpieces. So, yeah. yeah, I have full confidence that he'll create something at least good, if not I don't know about profitable. We'll see. <laughs> um, and then, so ratings for me as one of my favorite books. So obvious four stars. Now, my rating for the movie. Listen, <laughs> I, I, I have plenty of movies that I acknowledge are not good, or, or I'd even go to say are terrible, but I still like. Case in point. 2009's Death Race, starring uh, starring Jason Statham, um, one of one of the dumbest movies I've ever seen. But the action is actually amazing, and I, I like it. It's just so balls to the wall fun. So I have no right to judge, but there's really just nothing here for me to like except for the practical effects in the in the midway point so it's not it's not a zero out of four stars but it's it's a it's a half star out of four for me it's gonna be a no for me dog um mine is yeah i mean i admit that i imprinted on it like i was a duckling so that's yeah right Right. in in, in the wisdom of age i can look back and i was just like why do i like this and i still can't help it yeah (laughs) all right yeah it's fine we all have those guilty pleasures well we could keep talking, yeah. but I'm sure we need to like stop. <laughs> go to bed. No, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's late for you, Mister. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much, Sean. Yeah. This was an absolute pleasure. Learned so much about the book just from hearing you talk, and this has been another great episode. So we're so happy about that. Where can be, you be found if you want to be found on the social medias <laughs> or anything yeah. like that? Or apply to Jamestown U- University of Jamestown. I was about to say <laughs> if you if you if you need a college degree, you can <laughs> apply to the University of Jamestown, and I will be happy to teach you as an English professor. <laughs> yeah, I'm partial to Boston University, but <laughs> I did visit the beautiful town of Jamestown. North Dakota, and I visited the university and a beautiful campus. So, um, yeah, that be- it's a beautiful place if you want that. Great education. Yeah. 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 That's where I got my undergrad. Yeah. <laughs> you can find me on Letterboxd. My handle is Danny G Reviews. Laura? We have a podcast Facebook, Film is Lit, and a podcast Instagram, at Film is Lit Pod. At film underscore lit underscore podcast, right? I sometimes I forget sometimes, but well, yeah, Danny upkeeps the Instagram, I upkeep the Facebook. So. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, we're going to finish chugging our waters of life <laughs> beer. Um, and <laughs> yeah, uh, a virtual cheers to you yes. there. And we'll see you again. Doc. If you want to be another, if you want to be a guest again, you can come on and do the new Clint. movie when it's finally. Out yeah, theater. absolutely. Hope to, I would love to do that. <laughs> yes. Awesome. Maybe right. we can even see it together sometime. Ooh, Ooh. maybe. <laughs> All right. We'll see you on the next one. <laughs> <laughs>